Well, good morning. How are you guys doing today? Cool. Uh, my name is Marco. I'm the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse Community Church. Thank you so much for hanging out with us uh, this morning. I got a couple of announcements for you. Uh, number one, if you are if you're new, we'd love to hang out with you. So please fill out one of the connect cards that you find on those chairs. There should be pens nearby. Fill one out, drop it in the offering basket, or take it to the back connect desk, and uh, someone will get with you within 24 hours. That's called service, and uh, we would just love to hang out with you guys. In addition to that, uh, if you don't have a Bible, we love the Bible here. We love God's Word, and so we love preaching through books of the Bible. And so if you do not have one, there are Bibles available for you in the rows. That's our gift to you. Please, please take one. In addition to that, this morning we're going to be starting a new sermon series in the book of First Peter titled Exiles. I'm really excited about this, uh, this sermon series. I'm really excited about this book. But before I dive into that, uh, tomorrow, if you visit our website, storehousemccallan.com, there's going to be a link on there uh, under, I think, resources called guides. Uh, that is all of our discipleship guides that we use in our community groups, and it's everything from previous sermon series. We just loaded it. So it's everything from previous sermons, including First Peter. Those of you who are community group leaders, that will be in your inbox by tonight. Uh, everyone else, you can visit the website tomorrow morning, look it up, and get all these questions, a little bit of resources uh, in light of First Peter. Uh, so we just want to start providing more and more content for 2019. This is, this is not centered. Sorry. OCD. Um, that's just a little bit of content we have for, for you guys for, for 2019. We just want to start pushing all of that out. But nevertheless, that's, those are some quick announcements. Again, we're going to find ourselves in the epistle of uh, Peter. So we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1. We're only going to look at two verses today, verses 1 through 2. So while you flip through your Bibles, uh, man, I'll, I'll ramble a little bit. Uh, I mean, I already have, but I'll do a little bit more of that. Um, and, and, and then we'll, we'll pray and, and, and get started. Uh, man, so again, I hope you guys are doing well. I heard, uh, what's the team? The Cowboys. I'm seeing Ozzy's hat. The Cowboys, they lost, right? Ha <laughs> To some team. To some other team. So let's talk about someone who won't fail you. His name is Jesus. Uh, <laughs> so I saw that this morning. They lost to someone, and I'm, I'm sure they're upset. Whatever. The Rams. What kind of a name is that? Anyway, um, what are we talking about? First Peter. So we're going to be in First Peter chapter one. Here's what I'll do. I'm going to I'm going to read these two verses, uh, and then I'll and then I'll pray. And what we're going to do this morning, it's it's going to be kind of lengthy, just because I want to give you um, as robust of an introduction as possible in light of the Apostle Peter, uh, because I think oftentimes when we read through some of these epistles, like like Colossians or Ephesians, and including First Peter, I think all t- or, or Peter's epistles, he wrote two letters of the Bible or two books of the Bible. Oftentimes when we read through them, uh, I think we think that their life started there. And Peter is one of those guys that we're going to learn that his life actually didn't start with this epistle. It actually goes all the way back to Jesus's time and ministry on, on, on earth. And so we'll talk about that in a little bit. I'd like to read these two verses, pray, and then, uh, and then we're going to talk a little bit about Peter. He's the, he's the apostle many of us uh, can, can often relate to, and, and we'll see why. So again, thank you guys for hanging out this morning. Here we go. Starting in verse 1. 
Peter writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray. God, as we come before you uh, in a time of the preached word, God, I pray that our hearts would be softened and prepped, that they would have been prepped through, through song and worship. And because they are prepped, they would receive your word this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be at work in the hearts and lives of all those who are attending, my brothers and sisters, uh, and, and those who don't know you, that you would be at work in them. God, I pray for our time, not just this morning, but over the course of the next couple of months as we walk through this beautiful epistle of the Apostle Peter. I pray that we would uh, come, we, we would not lose sight and awe of Jesus, but that we would actually grow closer to him, that we would understand him more and in turn understand ourselves even more. And I pray for this time this morning we're so grateful and thankful for you, and I know that's not enough. We thank you for um, just our time of worship, and I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would work through me. Set me aside, excuse me, and that it would be you, and that you would be glorified. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as I mentioned, I want to kind of go all the way back. Even though we're going to start in these first two verses in the epistle of Peter, we're actually going to go all the way back and, and walk through very, very briefly the life of, of Peter. Uh, because as I mentioned earlier, it actually doesn't start here in First in Peter. And so uh, if you look at the notes, I think they're online. If you look at the notes, I've, I've broken down the life of Peter into three areas. It's, uh, it's Peter and Jesus, it's Peter and the Holy Spirit, and then Peter and the church. And so again, and I'm, I'm just going to walk briefly through this, and, and, and if you don't have your notes on you, then enjoy the story. And so uh, let's start with the, the early days. So we, we actually know a little bit about Peter, not just that he was one of the apostles, and not only that he was one of Jesus' disciples, but we know a little bit about him. We know, for instance, that he was a fisherman. We know that he was a businessman. When you read through the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, all of this is mentioned throughout those books, that he was a businessman, a fisherman. So we knew the culture. He knew the lay of the land. He was also married. Most notably, people know Peter uh, because he was chosen by Christ to be one of his disciples. And, and when you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Peter is, is often portrayed as someone who is aggressive and someone who is impulsive. Often he puts his foot in his mouth. We could already relate to him. Right? He puts his foot in his mouth. Peter is often the guy that, uh, even though we can relate a lot to, is often the one who gets a lot of slack for doing some of the things he does. For instance, uh, Peter tried to rebuke Jesus and successfully failed. Uh, Jesus called Peter Satan. And, uh, and at one point, uh, Peter walked on water for one or two steps, which is more than all of us in here combined. And so Peter was this guy who, again, was very impulsive 
aggressive and just kind of shot from the hip. And oftentimes it looked like he was looking for a fight or really excited when there was about to be a fight. He was that guy who was just all in. Uh, at one point when Jesus was arrested, Peter takes out his sword and he swings it and ends up cutting off one of the Roman soldiers' ears. And, and the truth is that he wasn't aiming for the ear. He was aiming for his head. And, and you could just see, or you can kind of imagine Peter, or excuse me, Jesus's face like seriously like, I just told you this would happen. And, you know, he's just putting the ear back on the Roman soldier, uh, uh, his head. Anyway, nevertheless, Peter is this, this impulsive, let's get it done, shoot from the hip. Like, I don't think this is right, and I'm going to tell you why. And often Jesus rebuked him. We actually see in Luke 22, by the way, we're going to look at a ton of scripture today. So, so I hope you have the books of the Bible memorized. And so Luke 22 verses 31 to 32, this gives us a glimpse into the relationship between Jesus and Peter. Uh, Jesus goes on to say, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Uh, one of the things that we see Jesus do with Peter is he's kind of hard on him. He's hard on Peter, but he's pushing him. He's always pushing him. He's always pushing him. And that leads us into the next thing that we know about Peter, that his actual birth name was Simon, son of John, right? If you go to John chapter 1, John writes, he brought him to Jesus, that's Peter's brother. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. Now that was incredibly encouraging in that, in that moment. Uh, so Simon was his birth name, but Christ changed it to, to, to Peter. Uh, the Greek pronunciation of, uh, of Peter is Petras. You could even hear, if you speak Spanish or you know a little bit of Spanish, the, the term for rock is piedra. And so you could hear uh, Petras, piedra, it means rock. It was his nickname, right? That's, that's what Jesus is giving him. He's calling him rock. Man, I know your name is Simon, but I'm gonna call you rock. I'm gonna call you Peter, right? Uh, the word or the name Cephas is Peter in Aramaic, if you wanted a little bit of nerdy excursions. But nevertheless, Jesus changes his name or he gives him the nickname Peter, right? And so often when we walk through the, the, the gospels, the accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when we walk through the gospels, we see a couple of things Jesus do with, with Peter's name. When, when Peter is acting out very impulsively, when he's acting out uh, aggressively, when he's kind of just shooting from the hip, looking for the fight, Peter, or excuse me, Jesus always refers to him as Simon. In other words, when he is acting like his old self, Jesus calls him Simon. Simon, Simon, why? Simon, you have little faith, right? He calls him Simon. But when Peter acts as he ought to be, or the kind of man he should be, Jesus refers to him as Peter, Right? So, so there's that little, little relationship that you have there when, when Peter drops the ball again, you hear him say, Simon, por qué? Right? And then, and then you, hear him, you hear him do something really well, and he's like, Peter, good job. Right? So it gives you a glimpse into their relationship. Additionally, Peter was one of three disciples. Even though there was the 12, Peter was one of three disciples who got backstage access to Jesus. There were a lot of things that Jesus brought Peter, James, and John into that the other disciples were not a part of. So, so Peter, like, if you think of it this way, 
Peter was a part of a, a group of 12. That was like his community group, right? And then Jesus narrowed it down to these three, and that was like his discipleship group. That's the, that's the group he spent a significant amount of extra time with, teaching them a little bit more, showing them a little bit more. He spent a lot of time, again, with Peter, James, and John. And finally, one of the biggest things, uh, if not one of the most popular things that we know about Peter is that he denied Jesus three times. He denied him after a time Peter said that he wouldn't, that he would actually fight to the death for Jesus. And this is shortly after he had also confessed Jesus as Lord or as the Christ. And so Peter said that he would fight to the death for Jesus. Nothing's going to happen. Jesus rebukes him. uh, And then Jesus is arrested and Jesus is falsely accused and Jesus is falsely tried. And Peter uh, denies him. The account of Luke uh, records that on the third denial of Jesus, that Peter and Jesus's eyes met when he said, I do not know that man. And uh, Luke records that not only did their eyes meet after he denied him a third time, but he turned and wept bitterly because he realized what he had just done after Jesus said, this is what you're going to do. Further, in John chapter, I think it's 2021, we looked at this as we walked through the series of glory, we see Jesus restore Peter right? We see Jesus come to the shore. Peter's impatient. He doesn't want to wait anymore, even though Jesus said he would appear to them later on. He gets impatient, as Peter usually does, and they go out fishing. Jesus comes to the shore, and he says, children, children, cast the net on the other side. Peter recognizes that it is Jesus, and he takes out his outer, outer garb and jumps into uh, the water, and he, and he swims over to Jesus, and he's like, man, there's so much fish. Oh my gosh, did you see how many fish? And Jesus is asking him, do you love me? And he's like, yes, 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 I do. Uh, man, check this out. Do you love me? He asks him three times. And in that third one, it's that full, complete restoration of Peter where his heart is just broken over what he has done, but also realizing that Jesus has just restored him. It is that man who becomes the leader of the disciples, the guy who's impulsive, the guy who's aggressive, the guy who's constantly dropping the ball, tripping over every single coffee table and can't seem to get ahead. He is the guy who is deemed the leader of the disciples. And so that's the early life of Peter. And then we fast forward into Acts chapter 2, where we see this man who was once ignorant and impulsive all of a sudden is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And he gives this massive expository sermon uh, at Pentecost. Uh, The Holy Spirit uh, comes down, descends on the disciples, and they're empowered. And so Peter comes out and he roars this huge, massive sermon to all the men of Israel. And what we see recorded, I'll read in just a minute, But what we see recorded as a result is that over 3,000 people come to submit their lives to Jesus and then they are baptized and the the early church is uh, exploding. Listen to to, to a, a, a snippet of Peter's sermon. Beginning in verse 22 in in Acts 2, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. And you yourselves know this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
God raised him up, loosing the, the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So he gives this beautiful account of the life of Christ and what Christ is doing. And then what we see in verse 37, you can actually read the whole chapter. I'm just giving you clips of it. And what we see in verse 37 is that as Peter is preaching this gospel, what we see is uh, that they actually interrupt him. They cut him off before he continues preaching the gospel of Jesus. They cut him off in verse 37 and they say, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So from ignorance and, and impulsion to being empowered by the Holy Spirit, this is, this is Peter, the one who constantly put his foot in his mouth. Further, uh, the same Peter who stuck his foot in his mouth is, is actually the main character of the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts and still drops the ball. He still drops the ball. Man, he is empowered. He is preaching Jesus. People are coming to know him. People are being saved and he drops the ball. I won't go into it, but if you, if you want to read more, you can go to Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, and the apostle Paul actually rebukes Peter. He calls him out in public for being a hypocrite, <laughs> right? Nah, I thought that was funny, but whatever, all right? So from, from, from being impulsive and aggressive to, to being someone who is empowered by the Holy Spirit and still drops the ball, Fast forward, we see the last days of Peter. This is Peter in the church where he is, he is now writing to Christians. And he's, by our standards, still fairly, fairly young. He's, he's in his 60s at this time. And he is writing to them uh, because they are scattered throughout Asia. And he is writing to them as an experienced leader. He's, ex he's writing to them as their pastor, as their shepherd. And this is what he says in, in 1 Peter 5.1. He says, so I exhort the elders among you. So he's writing to the pastors who are there, but along with the churches, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. What I, what I love about that, that one verse is Peter is coming to them humbly as someone who wants to serve them, wants to lead them. He is not coming to them and, and trying to show off what he's done, trying to show off who he is. He is saying, man, I exhort you. That means I'm encouraging you as, as a pastor myself and as someone who has been with Christ. I'm going to encourage you on a few things, right? He's going to share from his experience with Jesus. And so what I love again about this epistle is the fact that we're going to be learning from Peter who went to like, you know, Jesus's academy, literally. Like he spent time with Jesus. And so this is going to be a really cool section. Nevertheless, so he writes to them, and he actually wrote two books of the Bible, First and Second Peter. And it wasn't too long after he wrote these epistles that Peter was murdered. Now, some, some of the accounts vary, particularly in the time that this letter was written. But nevertheless, what we do know is that back in John 20, Jesus foretold his death. And then here we go to about 63, 64-ish A.D., somewhere around there. Um, and what we see Peter, uh, what we see happen to Peter is persecution begins in this time. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Persecution begins, and Peter is murdered at the hands of the Roman Empire. 
And they actually chose to crucify him just like they crucified Jesus. And as he was on his way to be crucified and learned that he was going to be crucified, he said, no, 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 I cannot be crucified. I cannot die the same way that my Savior did because I am not worthy. I am not worthy. And so they crucified him upside down. Now, some accounts vary in the sense that maybe his family was there or they had already been murdered. But that's Peter. That's that's the leader of the, the disciples. And so that kind of gives you this broad picture of Peter as a young man coming into being a young pastor with vibrancy and, and, and just speaking uh, truth to the, the early church to being an older dude who is, man, just encouraging the people who are about to face persecution or are in the midst of facing persecution. So now let's transition and talk a little bit about the life of the church. Well, who is he writing to and, and why is he writing to them? Same thing, looking over a couple of things. First thing is that he's, he's writing to the scattered church. He, uh, in, the, in, the first, uh, excuse me, in the first verse, he goes on to talk about that he's writing to people in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And so he's writing to Christians who are scattered all throughout Asia Minor uh, in what is known today as modern-day Turkey. Right? So, he's, so he's writing to all these Christians. They're all scattered, and they're scattered for several reasons. They're not just scattered because uh, they live in different areas. They're also scattered because one of the things that we'll talk about in a minute is that they're currently facing social persecution, uh, that they have been pushed out, rejected, abandoned by friends, family, um, and society in general. Businesses have kicked them out. So they are living, uh, literally, they're scattered throughout all of these small towns. And what's fascinating about these small towns is that Peter is the one who is given the opportunity to lead and pastor them um, at a time where the Holy Spirit actually kept Paul from, from preaching the gospel there. If you visit uh, Acts 16, verses 6 through 10, I think it'll be up on the screen, but if you visit Acts 16, Paul details that they wanted to go to this area to preach the gospel, but it was the Holy Spirit who kept them from going there. Uh, if you haven't read the book of Acts, I would encourage you to do so, because a lot of, a lot of these little uh, notes, these historical cross-references actually come from Acts, where you get this brighter picture of what is going on in the life of the early church and a lot of these men. So nevertheless, the Holy Spirit kept Paul from preaching there, and we see that in Acts 16. But Peter is given this wonderful opportunity to lead and pastor these people. Further, um, they're facing social persecution, what I just mentioned, right? They're facing rejection and abandonment. And what I find that to be so um, maybe fascinating, interesting about that is that, man, they are facing rejection and abandonment for their newfound faith, that they have become Christians and now culture and family is rejecting them. And I think about our context. I think about even my story to an extent, but I think about our context where many of you maybe came from a Roman Catholic background or a Roman Catholic tradition, and it's all good when you begin talking about family values or family tradition or even religious tradition and culture. But the minute you began to confess Jesus as Lord and the minute you begin to say, man, we need to repent of our sins, all of a sudden things changed, right? All of a sudden things changed. I remember when I became a Christian, it was about 10 years ago, I remember telling my, my father that, man, now I'm a Christian. And my dad, uh, he would describe himself as a devout, non-practicing Catholic. And my dad, uh, I, I'd go up to him and I would say, I, I told him, I was like, hey, I, I became a Christian, man. I love Jesus. And this is my first Bible. And I remember his response was, man, you have turned your back on the family. You have turned your back on our deep roots and heritage. Uh, so don't bring that message to me. 
right? And that might be several of yours story. That might even be some of the fear that you still experience in light of our context. Uh, and that's a very, very real one. And so similar to that in this culture, they're experiencing some of that. They're new Christians. And so people are finding out that they are new Christians. And so the culture is now rejecting them. People are now rejecting them. People are turning their backs on them. The society is turning their back on them. And so they're experiencing social persecution, but at the same time, they're having like the birth pains of violent persecution. Like this is just the beginning. And Peter will eventually talk about that more, particularly in chapter four. But this is just the beginning, the rejection or the social rejection, the abandonment. That's just the beginning. There's this one guy, um, Tacitus, I hope I pronounced that right, Tacitus, he was a Roman Empire historian, and he goes on to write about the reign of Nero, which is about the time that Peter's writing this, and about the time that these Christians are experiencing persecution, and he goes on to write about the kind of persecution or the kind of violent persecution that happened to these Christians. Uh, Man, he writes about a lot of early Christians being arrested, they would be arrested, they would be asked for valuable information, and uh, once they would give them valuable information, they would kill them anyway. He talks about how Nero and his men, or, or the Roman Empire, went into people's homes, brought them out of their homes, and as a way of torture, would throw them to wild dogs so that they would be eaten alive. He writes additionally that in this time, they would capture Christians and they would burn them alive to serve as torches in the night. That was the kind of persecution the early church in this area was, was about to face. And Peter sees that in the horizon and this whole rejection and abandonment is just the beginning. <clears throat> so that kind of gives you a little bit of a glimpse of who he's writing to, why he's writing to them. But one of the other things that Peter is going to mention, this is a large theme and this is a long introduction, but it is the first sermon in, in this epistle. One of the bigger themes that Peter is going to write about is that in the midst of this persecution, Peter's going to encourage them as elect exiles, partly because he needs them to remember that, that this life isn't it, that this place isn't home. That's his biggest reminder to them. And so he wants them to, to set their minds on their heavenly citizenship. We looked at this in Philippians uh, chapter 3. You can go to Philippians 3.20 where where Paul talks about our heavenly citizenship as as believers and followers of Jesus. And when Paul uses that language, he is using it in the present tense. He is saying, your citizenship in heaven starts right now. It's now. It's not something that you hope to get. It is something that you have. And likewise, Peter is encouraging these uh, Christians. He is encouraging these Christians, uh, man, to hold fast to their heavenly citizenship. And as a result, during their time on earth, to pursue holiness. This is where we start to get into the letter. Some of you may be on the verge of facing a difficult season. You see it on the horizon. Maybe you're currently in one. Maybe you just got out of one. I I don't know, right? Maybe 2019 has started really, really stressful or really, really difficult for you. And so through Peter, I hope that you're encouraged to, one, set your minds on your heavenly citizenship. That's number one. And two, in light of that, to pursue holiness. Throughout Peter's letter, he's going to encourage the church to pursue holiness in three facets. To pursue personal holiness. What does it look like for me as an individual to pursue holiness? 
He is going to encourage the church to pursue social holiness. What does it look like to pursue holiness in a culture that doesn't really like Christians? What is it like to pursue holiness when you're at a job where you may be the only Christian? What does it look like to pursue holiness when the culture around you is pretty much non-Christian? And then finally, he's going to encourage the church to pursue holiness communally. In other words, how do we as brothers and sisters in Christ pursue holiness for one another and together? Those are going to be some of the larger themes that Peter's going to talk about. And so with that being said, we dive in to the first two words, or one of the first two words that Peter writes. He addresses them as elect exiles. And I want to park there. I want to park there because oftentimes this makes people nervous. Right? And I don't want you to get nervous, but I do want to give this broad overview of what he's talking about. <clears throat> I want to give you clarity first as to why Peter writes elect exiles. Here's one thing that we need to talk about, or one thing that I'll mention, and I'll talk about it a little bit more in just a minute. Oftentimes, we'll see that word, elect, and we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to look at it. It freaks us out. It's a little scary. And the doctrine of election is something that should be approached with sensitivity, and I'll do my best to do so. With that being said, however, we can look at variety of translations, and it's going to present itself as elect, election, chosen, or sovereign grace. So one way or another, we need to address it, period. Okay, here we go. So the first thing is, we need to find clarity as to why Peter writes legs exiles, right? Peter is not using this language to ruffle feathers. I think if that's the first place we go to right now, if that's the first place that we approach, that man, he's just trying to pick a fight. No, he's actually trying to be encouraging to the church who is scattered right now. He is trying to be encouraging because he needs them to know that their identity is in Christ, not the culture around them. This isn't something that he's just trying to pick a fight with. He is using this language intentionally to encourage those Christians. He's trying to encourage them so that when they're in a time of affliction, the hope that will sustain them is God's eternal purpose. That's ultimately, when we're talking about holiness, those things that we're going to be pursuing, those are things that we pursue here as we look to setting our minds on our heavenly citizenship. He needs them to be grounded in the truth of the gospel. He needs them to be grounded in God's eternal purpose. He needs them to be grounded in the work of Christ and that they belong to him because since they're about to face persecution, you could tell, think about yourself in a variety of difficult seasons, oftentimes you begin to ask, where are you, God? Are you even present? Are you even doing anything? Where are you? Why are you allowing this to happen? And so Peter here is setting the tone, not to pick a fight, but to encourage them to say, man, I need you to rest not only in your identity that is found in Christ, I need you to rest in the fact that God's eternal purpose for your life is not random. It's not random. He even goes on to say elsewhere, I think it's uh, chapter four, he, he goes on to say, When times of suffering come, don't respond with surprise and ask, why is this happening? He's prepping them. He's prepping them with encouragement here. So that's number one, that there's clarity as to why he's using this. Now, when we're talking about the doctrine of election, I want to talk about, very briefly, two common-held positions. 
There are more, and we don't have time for that because I've already given a lengthy introduction, but there are two commonly held positions when we're looking at election. If you're asking, what does it mean? What does that mean? Election. We're asking, man, we're, we're talking about uh, God's chosen people or the way in which God calls people to himself. And so the first position, excuse me, the first position looks at God looked down the corridor of time, saw who would choose him, therefore he then chose them. In this position, election begins with man. It begins with man and God's response to man. He's looking down time, people are saying, save me, he responds to that. And again, both of these are an oversimplification. The second position Second position is actually where we would hold, we would stand. It's that all have strayed, so everybody, all have turned and strayed from God. No one seeks God or is spiritually good and actually by choice chooses hell. That we run after our own desire and the last thing that we want to do is please God. So that we choose hell, but nevertheless, God in mercy and grace, regardless of merit or status, saves them. He saves them. In other words, it's not that some are good and some are bad, but that we're all bad and we're all sinners by nature and choice, that we are what the Bible says, spiritually dead, and that we do not desire to please God. And so God, through Jesus, sends him to make us spiritually alive. So, with that being said, here's the reality of the doctrine of election. Again, that was an oversimplification, but we'll talk more about that as we go forward. Here's the reality of the doctrine of election. A couple of things that I hope sting, and I'll tell you why. The first thing is that the doctrine of election is biblical. Regardless of where you stand, the doctrine of election is biblical. <clears throat> Look at John 6.37, or better yet, before we go there, even though you can put it up, the doctrine of election is biblical. In other words, that we have been saved by grace. Otherwise, we'd remain spiritually dead. Listen to John 6.37, and I'm only looking at a couple. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Elsewhere, in John 15.16, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. And, I, and this is the, the one part I want to I emphasize because I think this part gets overlooked. Uh, everybody, a lot of other nerds will look at the first half. But here's the other thing. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. The doctrine of election is biblical. That's one. Number two, the doctrine of election ought to propel you to be one of, if not the most humble person ever. The doctrine of election teaches that we are all running from God. We are all running from God. And that in his mercy and in his grace, he reaches out and calls us to himself. You didn't do anything. It wasn't by your merit, your status, how many books you've read, how much you know, how many verses you've memorized, what school you went to, how big your bookshelf is. It was solely the sovereign grace of God upon your life. That ought to humble you. 
Some of you here, I'm not talking generally in the church, some of you need to rest there because you're one of the most or some of the most arrogant when it comes to this. The doctrine of election ought to humble you. Listen to 1 Corinthians 27, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 27, 29, and 31. This is what Paul says. He says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. What do you have? What do you have but Jesus? What do you have but Jesus? In fact, when you go the route of arrogance and when you go the route of waving the banner of how much you've figured out election, more than anything, what you do is you stunt your sanctification. In other words, you stunt your growth. You make the church look bad. You withhold grace from people. Repent of your arrogance, please. Repent of your arrogance. The third thing is, similar to humility, is that we ought to be compassionate. If the doctrine of election teaches that there was nothing in us that made God choose us or save us, that it was all by his mercy and grace, then it is the church who ought to best understand kindness and forgiveness. Colossians 3, verses 12 through 13, Paul writes, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Some of the most bitter people that I've ever met are in the church. What do you have but Jesus? And as a result, compassion, kindness, and forgiveness ought to flow out from you. Instead, often what we see in the church is those things are kept to ourselves. Those things are held with conditions toward others. As long as that monkey dances, then maybe I will extend to them compassion, kindness, and forgiveness. Because of what God has done, not only should it humble us, it should make us the most compassionate people. The fourth thing should make us, the doctrine of election, should make us the most evangelistic. Nobody wants to hear that part, right? Not much of it. This should make us the most evangelistic. Well, if God chooses, do we even need to preach? Yes, we do need to preach. You could look at Romans 10. How will they know if someone isn't sent and someone isn't preaching? If God chooses, do we even need to pray? Yes, we do. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. Paul writes, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. 
Therefore, I endure everything. What did Paul endure? Go to 2 Corinthians 10, and he'll talk about the imprisonment. He'll talk about the beatings. He'll talk about everything that he's undergone. And what he is saying in 2 Timothy is, I don't even know who they are, and I'm going to preach. I'm going to go to wherever it is God calls me to so that I can preach the gospel of Jesus so that more and more people can come to know Jesus. And I expect you, Timothy, to do the same thing. I would be way more comfortable with many if you, I mean that generally, if you would actually stop making excuses and be honest and say, I'm just really afraid and insecure of evangelizing. Instead, what I often see is people say, well, let's define evangelism and let's go to these verses and let me show you my nifty bookcase. I would much rather you just admit I'm actually petrified of walking up to a stranger and telling them that uh, they should repent and believe in Jesus. And I say that, I say that from a, I think, completely relatable position. That is the most daunting thing to me. Like, I can evangelize. I am not a strong evangelist. Nathaniel reminds me of that and, like, encourages me all the time regarding evangelism. And it's not because I want to go hide, it's because I'm petrified. I'm afraid of rejection, and I've been rejected. I'm I'm afraid of getting stumped, and you're going to get stumped. I get stumped all the time. And then there's going to be that one occasion, the one where you're like, this is dumb. I don't even know why I'm doing this. And there's going to be this one occasion, man, where the Holy Spirit just wrecks somebody regenerates their heart, and you're going to be like, oh my gosh, I got to be a part of that. Like, God brought me to work with him. You know what I mean? You get to see that. May not happen often, but it's still really cool when it does. This ought to make the church the most evangelistic people ever. And so, if that's you, you're just like, I just don't like it. I think I would even prefer that answer. Because we could do some business with that, right? Uh, we could do some business with that. Because that, now, at that point, in fact, you're saying like, man, I just don't like it. Well, that's a heart issue. It's not a theological issue. Some of you just want to crowd behind the theology and be like, yeah, no, it's because of these verses, and I read this one dead guy. Be like, Or you're just afraid. And that's cool, man, because uh, that's a heart issue, so let's work through that. It should make us the most evangelistic. When we talk about fairness, oftentimes when we're looking at salvation, when we're talking about fairness, the the question then, man, so is salvation fair? Like none of this sounds fair, and I don't like it. Well, the truth is, if we're answering the question of salvation, whether or not it's fair, then the answer is, I would agree with you. It's not. It's not fair. It is not fair. Instead, it is actually a gift of God's grace to sinners. It is a gift of God's undeserving favor to his enemies. To his enemies. That while we were still sinning, Christ died for us. The word still in that Romans 5 passage is present tense. Right now, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so in light of that, if we judge salvation based on fairness, then all of us deserve hell. All of us 
deserve hell. See, at the heart of election is both a father preaching repentance to his children and him reminding them that they belong to him. The Christian isn't better. The Christian is simply repentant. And repentance ought to breed worship. It ought to breed worship. The doctrine of election is God the Father pursuing His children who are running away from Him doing what they already want to do. It is a father preaching repentance daily to them. Turn away, look at me. Turn away, look at me. Repent, repent, repent. He's calling his children home as a father pursues his children. I think about this one story. I won't give the guy's name, but he was telling me a couple of weeks ago, a long time ago, I think it was the perfect example, or one of, a <laughs> long time ago, he was, um, his son had gotten into some stuff. And so his son ran away from home. His son ran away from home and he was at uh, another person's house and there was like drugs involved and all that. And so this information gets wind to uh, this, this brother of ours, right? So this information gets wind to him and he uh, gets the information. And the next thing is, I need to go get my son. I need to go get my son, right? So he jumps in his car. He does all of his things, finds out where his son is at after uh, asking a bunch of questions and following up with a bunch of people, finds out where his son is. And I remember him telling me that he was walking up to this house. There's these two people, big dudes, hanging out. He just totally ignores them, bangs on the door, opens it, sees his son. His eyes are like, oh my gosh, my dad's here. He grabs him and he takes him out of the house, right? And he throws him in the truck and, you know, dad does whatever dad does, right? And, uh, uh, and so <laughs> in light of that, that's a beautiful example. That is his son exercising his free will, what he wanted to go do. And the father went after him, grabbed him from the shirt, and plucked him out of what was going on. Who doesn't get what they want? It's the Christian that doesn't get what they want. That's election. It is the father thrusting himself into the mess that it is our lives as we run away from him hard. Not because we thought it was a good idea, not because we got spreadsheets, but because we want to. And he thrusts himself, grabs us, and he pulls us out. That's election. As a father pursuing his children, reminding them that they belong to him. As elect exiles, God has purposed us to hold the truth of the gospel so that we would repeatedly be encouraged and strengthened and so that we would set our minds on what is earthly, excuse me, on what is heavenly, not earthly. Let's look at verse two. Peter goes on. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Man, salvation is not only is it initiated by God, but we see the complete involvement of the Trinity. And we see it here in verse 2. And I love that. You see that each one has a role in salvation. Beginning with the Father, Peter says, according to the Father's foreknowledge. I want to talk about that word. It's also known as foreknow. 
that word foreknowledge or to foreknow isn't, isn't just like, you could look at the prefix and kind of come up to your own conclusion, right? It means before, right? Before, before uh, knowing, right? Before time. Eh, we could, we'll get there. The word know, however, the word know isn't simply this idea that the Father had. It's not this uh, distant, disconnected uh, type of knowledge, right? Like uh, we know celebrities, but we don't know them. Like we don't have like, uh, like intimate knowledge of them in a relationship with them as a, as a quirky example. And so the word know in foreknowledge or in foreknow is this actual intimate relationship knowledge that God the Father has. Now, you couple that and you amplify the word. That means that before, as Ephesians 1 says, before the foundation of the world, before mountains were created, before oceans were filled, before animals roamed the land, God set his eyes, his heart, and his affection on you. It is specific. That's what makes, that's the separation from it being general and it being intentional and purposeful and, 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 and specific. Foreknowledge means before time even began, you were pursued. You were pursued. That means before you drop the ball in any horrible way, before you didn't do this or did that, or in spite of those accomplishments, in spite of where you come from and where you're at, he set his affection on you. As a result, Peter goes on to say, as a result, he talks about the sanctification of the Spirit. So according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit. It's twofold here. That is, as God renews our hearts, right? That, that, that first part, right? Regeneration. When He makes our hearts new, that is all God. When we talk about sanctification, that is us and God. And so He's saying, according to the foreknowledge of the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, that is, as we grow in sanctification, as we mature, that we would be obedient to Christ. That's what he says, right? For obedience to Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. In short, here's what he's saying in that, that, that brief section. Our relationship with God is that because we have been saved, we would obey Christ. Not so that we would be loved by God, but because we are loved by God. It's a big difference. It is a big difference. Think of, uh, I mentioned this example before, think of that of a parent. If you're a parent and you preach, if you do A, B, and C, then I will love you. That's a false gospel. That is a false gospel that you preach to your children. Because what the gospel says here is that we obey because we are loved. Going back to that foreknowledge. You are loved. You have been pursued. And so Peter ends by saying, may grace and peace 
be multiplied with you. It's a similar conclusion to even some of the Apostle Paul's letter. And here's what I would say just about those two things. Grace isn't only God's undeserving favor, but it's the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit in the believer. And peace isn't only reconciliation between God and man, but it's the reflection of God's character through you. And so when Peter uses the word multiply, he is saying, man, I hope you grow in grace and peace. Like salvation isn't that you're just now saved and you don't get to do anything anymore. You're good to go. He's saying, I hope you grow in uh, sanctification. I hope you grow in your peace, that you reflect the character of God to others. I hope you mature. I hope you are sanctified. I hope this is something that doubles and triples and grows beyond you. If you know Jesus, this is where we'll close. If you know Jesus, then be encouraged. Be encouraged because you have been pursued before time even began. It is God's pursuit of you that sustains you. And if you don't know Jesus, he invites you to come to him. Over and over and over again in the Gospels, Jesus says, come to me, come to me, come to me. He invites you to come to him. You see, the beauty of Christ is that he is prepared to pardon all sinners who turn to him in repentance. Let's pray. God, as we uh, come to a close in our time, um, God, my simple prayer is that we would be encouraged by your word. Man, that as, as we learn that you have been pursuing us before time began, and in light of all of the generations that have passed, you have been specific uh, in pursuing us. You have been intentional in pursuing us. You have been purposeful in pursuing us. God, may we worship you openly this morning. God, I pray that we would repent of arrogance, that we would repent of any pride, that we would repent of any sin that you bring to light this morning that we would repent of that sin and that it would breed worship so that we would be in awe of you, so that we would hold fast to the truth of the gospel, so that we would set our mind as exiles on our heavenly citizenship and not our earthly one. That doesn't mean that we don't do anything here or during our time here. It just means that our focus and motivation is on our heavenly citizenship. God, as we transition into a time of tithes and offerings, God, I pray that we would be good stewards of these finances. 
I pray for the year, 2019, that as we walk into it, we would see more people come to know Jesus. That as we walk into this new year, that we would use these finances to expand your kingdom, to to develop partnerships with others who are, uh, man, expanding and spreading your gospel. And most importantly, that your glory would be made known. Let this time be a time of worship. Let it be a time of reflecting the change or your work in us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.